Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Men of Crime, featuring David Free and Michael Robotham in conversation with Matthew Condon, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you and welcome. Before we begin the pyrotechnics, I have to read this statement. Uh, it's the Penn Empty Chair Statement. Penn was founded in 1921 to act as a powerful voice on behalf of writers harassed, imprisoned and sometimes killed for their views. The empty chair on stage is a symbol adopted by Penn International to represent the writers who cannot be with us because they are imprisoned for their writing. Penn International condemns the conviction of blogger and government critic May Nam on 29 June 2017. May Nam, who has been detained since her arrest in October 2016, was convicted of, quote, conducting propaganda against the Socialist Republic of Vietnam and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Penn International believes that May Nam is being targeted for peacefully exercising her right to freedom of expression. To find out more, go to penn.org.au. Thank you. Okay, now the fun. It's always fun, one of the last sessions of a festival because we can essentially say anything, do anything. <laughs> it's open slather, really. Um, and uh, we're going to bring you... Let me first explain that, that we're, we are missing Tony Jones through illness. More of that later. But um, this I've described, uh, this session, as a reviving shot of absolute pure testosterone <laughs> with men of crime. This session, as my grandmother used to say, will put lead in your pencil. <laughs> Men of crime. Not writers of crime, not authors of crime, but men of crime. Are you sure I'm in the right place? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, so uh, for men of crime, we have on stage uh, two, well, th me, I guess, but two men who will fill the definition of true men of crime as effortlessly, effortlessly as, a hel as helium fills a balloon. Um, they're rugged, manly, and most, most importantly, bewhiskered. And I, in fact, didn't shave, deliberately didn't shave this morning, <laughs> just so that I might fit in. <laughs> Tony Jones is ill. I find that I think that's very unmanly of him to I fall ill <laughs> and to I not did. join the session. Yeah, it was an earache, I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, okay, let me introduce our real men, David Free is a novelist, a critic, and the author of an absolutely hilarious um, crime, crime novel called uh, Get Poor Slow. Uh, it skewers the publishing industry and the critic industry like nothing I've ever read. And I will, I've got a couple of extracts uh, to share with you a little bit later. Um, um, Clive James is a huge fan of um, David and said Free had instantly become his favourite Australian author of psychological thrillers with the publication of this book. And Clive's quote is, Free is far too civilised for this kind of writing, which is probably why he's so disturbingly good at doing it. <laughs> David Free. <laughs> Michael Robotham, an old friend of mine, this kid from rural New South Wales before he became an international uh, best-selling man of crime, uh, author of so many novels, The Suspect, The Night Ferry, Bleed For Me, 
Say You're Sorry, Life or Death, which won the UK's Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger. Just try and digest this, beating out J.K. Rowling and Stephen King. Ooh. <laughs> yes, you've digested it. And his latest, The Secret She Keeps, all of which have been translated across the world. And he is now so highly esteemed and widely read that on a website called Book Browse, they have a section where they recommend books by writers, quote, similar to Michael Robotham. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Robotham. Um, as a writer who's been on sessions, I find it really boring when the chair summarises my latest books. I'm going to ask you individually to do that for your own books. David. Okay. I, I should first say that I'm, I might be um, a little bit of an imposter in that I'm not... Um, maybe I'm not a pure crime writer, but my book certainly salutes the crime genre, particularly the private eye, Raymond Chandler sort of novel. So instead of having the protagonist be a private eye... He's actually a literary critic and uh, there's been a, a hideous murder and he's the prime suspect. So not only did the police suspect him, but the media's camped out on his front lawn, his public enemy, number one. Um, and because nobody else is looking for the real killer, he has to look for the real killer. And he's not all that well equipped to do so because he's uh, a bit of a boozer. Um, he's having a midlife crisis, but he does his best and... That's the setup, I guess. It's an interesting premise because I know plenty of people who would want to kill book critics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sure I'm not in there? He's well, you know, he's already a reviled person even before he's suspected of murder. So it just uh, intensifies that theme. We'll learn more about Ray Saint as we yeah. talk this afternoon, Michael. Um, all right. First of all, just addressing this issue of uh, of, of whether I'm a man of crime or not. Uh, I do recall my youngest daughter, uh, when she was about seven years old, uh, said to me, Dad, you don't, you don't go off to an office like other dads do, do you, and work in the city? And I said, no, I don't. And you don't sort of go and have a beer after work with all your mates you know, from work? I said, no, I don't do that. And you don't, you don't surf or play rugby or touch football? No, no, I don't. He said, you're a bit of a girly man, aren't you, Dad? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I'm the girly man of crime. Um, <laughs> uh, the new book, actually, yeah, because it's certainly the new book, wouldn't, you wouldn't call it a testosterone sort of fueled uh, crime novelist when it's told through the eyes of two, two women. Agatha works as a supermarket uh, stacker, shelf stacker, and... Uh, She's, uh, she's had a pretty, you know, um, pretty awful sort of life and, and childhood. And she looks forward each day to the arrival of this elegant woman called Megan who comes in to buy a few items. And, and Megan has what Agatha sees is the perfect life. A very successful husband, uh, two beautiful children, a lovely house in the, in the suburbs of South London. And Megan also runs a, uh, writes a mummy blog very successful mummy blog, which Agatha reads every night while she waits for her wayward boyfriend to call her. Both of them are pregnant. Both of their babies are due on the same day and their lives are about to collide in the most dramatic of ways. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you girly man of oh, pride. <laughs> I'm now, channeling, I've <laughs> definitely channeled my girly side on this one. 
Now, David, uh, before this session last week, was very, very helpful to me in raising discussion points. One of those was, um, and I'll quote um, David in his email if he doesn't mind, uh, uh, the fact that um, our books are rooted in real-life stories that we read about in the news. In the ca and, and I've heard that Michael Robotham say that many of his books, including his latest book, have been, quote, seeded in newspaper stories. Uh, in the case of his current novel, he doesn't want to say exactly what that newspaper story was since it would give away part of his plot, but I'm sure he could talk around the general question. Mine started with a couple of newspaper stories, and while it moved away from them in some ways, they remained important as fuel. So let's talk about the seeding of ideas. Yeah, well, those two particular stories that I was talking about, um, this is before I was necessarily thinking of writing a novel at all, but there, there were a couple of stories about this technique that the police have called bumper lock surveillance where they don't it's really... Like call, say it again. Bumper lock surveillance? Bumper locks. Bumper lock. Oh, Bum bumper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, there was a, early on in the investigation into the Claremont serial killings in Western Australia, they had this guy that they regarded as a red-hot suspect who has now turned out to be completely innocent and he had nothing to do with it but for a long time they were um, very publicly putting pressure on him by following him around and the press knew his name and they put his photo in the paper and he was there was another case in Britain which was fairly similar I don't know if you remember there was a woman who was murdered in a park while she was jogging in front of her toddler and it's Rachel Nacal that's it yeah yeah and the first suspect that they had for this, again, turned out to be not guilty in the long run. But they put him under a tremendous amount of public pressure and scrutiny. They got a, an undercover policewoman to pretend to be romantically interested in him and get close to him and to encourage him to tell her, tell her his violent fantasies about murdering women and in order to sort of encourage him, she made up some fantasies and told him. It struck me as a very unethical technique um, and I, I started to think of it from the point of view of the, the quiet loners who were not guilty of anything except being odd in society's eyes. So those were the two stories that got me started on, on thinking of a similar sort of figure in a similar predicament. It didn't really take fire as a novel until I stopped thinking about that character as someone who was at arm's length so from It's me. that classic idea at times if they if the tunnel vision, that if the police really, really believe that they have the right person and, and adopt that sort of blanket approach and they would then just put them under enormous pressure, release their name, have them sort of publicly, let the media know that you're going to arrest them so that they're photographed going in and out of the station and all of it just adds to the pressure in the hope that they will, I assume, crack or reveal some detail that only the, the killer would know. Exactly, because they've got no evidence against them except hoping for perhaps a confession or a, a yeah. cracking in the end. And that not only struck me as outrageous, uh, but I started to wonder what would anybody's life look like when put under that sort of spotlight, including my own, how uh, you know everybody's weird in certain different ways. Uh, and there was a bit of a pile-on in both of those cases that got me thinking about... Uh, yeah, I tell you what, if the police saw my Google feed, they'd, they'd certainly be... <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that, that's interesting about putting a potential suspect under pressure. What's, been, what's happened in Queensland just in the last couple of years is that the police have utilised the powers of the Crime and Corruption Commission or the ICAC, as you know it, in New South Wales 
to, and, and they have the powers of a royal commission, in order to place the pressure on 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 not just suspects but but potential witnesses to in to ensure it seems to my mind a, a speedier um, situation in terms of of arrest and and yeah. tr- and trial. Yeah, I know it's funny because I know the Rachel Nickel case yeah. very well, and the Colin, Colin Stagg was the name of the the guy who who was targeted by the police, and um, and it's an interesting sort of error. I also know. Paul Bostock was a guy that was ultimately convicted of, of that crime. Um, but that was a situation where there were a limited number of people on Wimbledon Common. Rachel Nickell was murdered and uh, savagely stabbed and her, her young boy witnessed it, but he was too young to be able to give evidence. And there were so few people on Wimbledon Common at that time. And, they, and Colin Stagg was one of the people there and he had a history of... of um, a pretty seedy sort of history. So, I mean, it's a reason why he wasn't sort of randomly picked. There was, I'm not saying it was yeah, right no, what they yeah. did, but there was a reason why, and that was also a crime. One of the reasons it was so so important was that it turned out the Metropolitan Police Commissioner's wife was on Wimbledon Common at the time of the murder, and she regularly walked on it. So the pressure on the police that was brought to bear to, to solve this crime. It was a hugely public crime. Again, that typical, very, um, Rachel Nicole, very attractive, blonde, young mother. I mean, it, it ticked all the boxes when it came to being sort of an absolute media frenzy about that story. And the pressure placed on the police saw lots of corners being cut. And, yeah. And, uh, it's and really you can, yeah, you can un- I can understand the other side too. You can see how the tunnel vision develops. You believe that, that somebody must be guilty, and and yeah. and there's some reason to believe it. And you and you just sort of get that confirmation yeah. bias, and yeah. What about this for you, Michael? In terms of, I mean, you were were a journalist yourself, but yeah. So all the all all the books have been seated in in real life events. So, life or death, the one that won the dagger, um, is a is a book which in, on I can tell you the date, March the twentieth, nineteen ninety five. I read two paragraphs about a twice convicted killer who escaped from jail the day before he was due to be released. And, and the obvious question is, you know, why would anyone do that? And I, and I do know the true story of it, but, but in my case, I sat, I sat on that for, for 20 years, sort of thinking, and, until I came up with a reason as to why someone would do that. And then I sat it in Texas and it, you know, gave it a real Shawshank Redemption sort of vibe. But all of the, you know, even right down to, I mean, one of my novels was triggered, you know, I don't, many of you may remember the old days in America, missing children were put on milk cartons. So you would actually see the little story about the missing child on the milk carton. And uh, my novel Lost, the second novel I wrote, uh, was triggered by reading, just being in America and reading this little two paragraphs about this child who lived on the, on the highest story in an apartment block their friend buzzed downstairs and said, can, can Julie come out and play? And the mother said, Julie's on her way down now. About eight stories. And Julie didn't make it to the ground floor. And Julie's body, or Julie, was never found. And so the idea of a child going missing in an eight-story building where there was someone standing at the only entrance completely intrigued me, obviously. So it's, they're the sort of things that, that, that will trigger something in me. And I'll say, yep, there's a story. There's a novel in there. Did you ever find out the premise of life or death? Did you ever find out why that prisoner actually escaped the day before he was due to be released? Well, it's, re- it's actually a funny story. What, oh well, funny story in the sense that this guy killed when he was 18, went to prison. I, I wish I could remember his name. I know when I was touring that book I could remember the actual name of the guy. 
Um, he was he served 13 years. He he was uh, released from prison. He killed within 30 days. He went back to prison for another 15 years. By which time he had become a model prisoner. He was due to be released. He escaped. Uh, he spent one night under the stars in the Blue Mountains and the next day waved down a police car and gave himself up. And he was given two more years on his sentence for having escaped. That two years passed. The day before he was due to be released, he escapes from prison. Nobody reported him missing because they thought, he'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> I think he's regarded as Australia's least most wanted prisoner. <laughs> because he'd become a model prisoner and he vanished without trace. He has never been discovered since. Now, I've heard lots of rumours. Some people think he's sipping pina coladas in the islands. Other people think that he'd, he'd actually become a sort of, you know, a, a bit of a sort of stool pigeon in prison and there were people waiting on the outside to, to get rid of him. But nobody knows the real reason of what happened to him. Um, what about true crime? David, I know you're interested in true crime. Are there some crimes that are, would be impossible to actually fictionalise because they would be unbelievable? Well, none that I can think of off the top of my head. The one that really haunts me is the Beaumont children. I think that's almost like Australia's um, greatest unsolved crime. And I can, it's, it's historical. It sort of really does go back to a different era entirely um, and they keep being vague suggestions that maybe the you know it's there might be a possibility of it being solved that one sort of sticks in my mind um, there were a lot of I sort of um, with the cases that inspired me there was a period where I just sort of the imagination took a hold of them and you sort of lift away from the specifics of them and you just concentrate on what interested you about them. So, yeah, I, w I would find it limiting to sort of address myself to a particular case and try and stick with it. It's more the sort of um, the fuel that it can give you to sort of, mm. you're not even consciously thinking about it and then you think, oh, I've um, developed a few ideas out of this, which... Um, I mean, you're a probably better person to answer that anyway because with the, you know, I'm sure many of you know Matt's Matt's books and the and the and the non-fiction books he's done about corruption in Queensland and through you know the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But there's stuff that you uncovered, real life stuff that I know that if you'd put in a novel, no one would believe. Well, firstly, we're dealing with Queensland, <laughs> <laughs> um, and secondly, that's true. I've published with the four books over half a million words on this topic, and. I still shake my head um, with every book, with every chapter. Uh, there are many major and minor situations, like the very first Queensland Father of the Year was Sir Frank Bischoff, the corrupt police <laughs> commissioner, though he never had children. <laughs> Another Queensland conundrum. Yeah. Um, I sat down for three long years with former Knight of the Realm Police Commissioner Terry Lewis jailed for 15 years for corruption, um, interviewed him for three years until he threw me out when the second volume of the trilogy was published. He didn't like it the way that the direction of the trilogy because it was heading in the direction of the truth and not fantasy. And I was just happily, as I do, mucking around on the Great Trove website and I simply typed in Mona Ellen Lewis, his mother's name, for no apparent reason at all. 
I'd already published the trilogy at this point. And up pops these news stories that had not been digitised when I was writing and publishing the books, but were now new to me. I'd never seen them before. And they were about a court case in Brisbane in, um, in the early 1950s. And it was about Mona and her attempts to divorce Terry's dad, George. And the, the court cases gave details of their horrific marriage and the domestic violence perpetrated by George against Mona, so much so that she was bashed so severely that she had an eye removed. Really? Now, she left the marriage and um, Terry told me, and I checked the transcripts, of the million words of transcripts that I have, this is in the first three pages of the transcripts. And he said to me, bear in mind this is in the first ten minutes of three years of interviews. And I said, tell me about your mum and dad. Oh, mum was terrible. She, she never said she loved me. and uh, She was terrible to my father and very aggressive. And one day she got up and left and moved the family back to Brisbane and I had to stay with my dad and grandmother and then... Um, I moved to Brisbane to try and find my mother and she shoved me on a stretcher on the balcony and all these, this terrible story of this awful childhood. And it, the truth was the absolute Opposite. reverse. Yeah. As it turns out, Mona, um, George ended up in a psychiatric institution for four years, from 39 to 43. While he was in there, Mona, um, as the court so beautifully put it, misbehaved herself with a gentleman. <laughs> And gave birth to Terry's stepson, whom I'd never heard of, called Gary Lewis. So, um, what is truth and what is not yeah. truth? I mean, um, it, it's true. I mean, I look. It's interesting because I think, you know, even though there's been there's a lot of crime fiction out there. If if I ten years ago or however long this incident happened, if I'd written a, if I'd written a crime novel about a father who imprisoned his daughter in a basement for 17 years and fathered seven children by her, nobody would believe that. And I honestly think, you know, through a, in a career in journalism, that a lot of the time, as a fiction writer, I spend my time toning down the truth to make it more believable, mm. because um, to make it more palatable to readers, because if you really did put exactly... The, I mean, whether it be the level of corruption or violence or... Actually, normally the stupidity of people, you know. Um, yeah, people would go, no, surely that can't be right. Um, before I asked, we were talking about the sorts of questions you get for, at, at <laughs> sessions like this and the questions that you most despise. <laughs> and Michael, I, you, I didn't use you, the word despise. No, not despise. <laughs> You're right, it wasn't that strong. But there's a question that you, you previously never liked but you don't mind now, and that is where do you get your ideas from? So can you tell me why you <laughs> like that question now? I like that question now because I've heard I've been various places and I've heard other writers answer it and 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 like I mean I can tell you now exactly and this is you know uh, and and Neil Gaiman this is Neil Gaiman's answer to that question uh, where does he get his ideas from There's this little shop in Brighton and it's just off the seafront and if you walk down the alleyway and you knock on the door you know and you do this secret knock they let you in and it's full of ideas. <laughs> And, and Ian Rankin, uh, he, 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 again, it's one of those questions Ian, Ian got. And he said, oh, well, it's really easy. He said, when you, when, you, when you get signed a publishing deal with your publishers, they give you this website link and, you, and a password and you go on this website and it's just full of ideas and you go down there and you find the one you like and you tick it and you put your name beside it and no one else can take that. 
And he told, I heard him, I was there when he told that story and someone came up to him afterwards in the signing tent and wanted to give him 50 quid if he'd give him the address of the website. <laughs> <laughs> so we love that question now. Um, why crime? I mean, I know you've said that you're an accidental crime writer, but there's a great quote from Dashiell Hammett, of all people, who said, when you write, you want fame, fortune and personal satisfaction. You want to write what you want to write and feel it's good and you want this to go on for hundreds of years. Wow. You're not likely ever to get all these things and you're not likely to give up writing and commit suicide if you don't. But that is and should be your goal. Anything else is kind of piddling. Oh, wow. No, I think you're like not likely to get any of those. Um, <laughs> um, oh, look, I, look, anytime someone says to me that they, they, they want to write because they want to be rich and famous, I mean... You've laughed, really. <laughs> um, look, I've been very fortunate, you know, but I realise how fortunate I've been with the, with the success I've had. Um, I think that writing should start as just a passionate hobby and if you're, you know, and if you do it, you do it because you love it. And if someone were to outlaw it tomorrow and said you're not allowed to write, you would do it by candlelight in your basement while the jackboots marched in the street above because you just write because you love it. And then if you're good enough and you're lucky enough and the planets line up and you sleep with the right person, yeah. then maybe, you know, maybe you can get published, you know. Um, but no, I, I was accidental crime writer. I, I wrote, I, I wanted to write a story. I wanted to tell a story and I wanted it to be suspenseful. And I was as surprised as anyone when, um, when you know, I, it came out and I kept getting asked the question, why did you decide to be a crime writer? Um, I love the genre, I really do, but I, I didn't sort of, set out to go down that road. Yeah, neither did I. And um, I think one of the, I, I mean, I only sort of found things out along the way about why I've chosen it. I guess the reason I chose it in the first place is because I do love reading those sort of books and I wanted to write something that people would find compelling. And when you put a crime, a murder into a novel, it just raises the stakes of everything else you want to write about. So you can write about the big themes, you can write about... Um, you can write about death, you can write about love, but all of the, it's like turning it up to 11 when you've got a uh, murderer in the book as well and people are but turning gone, up dead. I mean, you've gone, I mean, I think it's one of the hardest things to do is to write comedy, to write comic. It's well, be funny to not just write, you know, uh, and, and create suspense and, and create this whodunit, but to actually make it laugh out loud funny. Well, thanks. I mean, I... I was thinking a lot of Raymond Chandler when I wrote the book, and he's a that well-known comic writer. Well, he's got <laughs> he he was dark, but he had some great one-liners. He did. Um, yeah. The Geordie quoted one of them this morning when I was talking to him. Um, she was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, so if I could, uh, I thought th those are the sort of lines I was going for in my book. But but it's it's. Um, it's a black comedy anyway. It's, they're in a grim setting. Hmm. Why is it, though, that crime fiction and true crime are booming genres around the world? Yeah, I actually do. I'm, I'm a bit of a true crime buff as well and sometimes ask myself why, you know, in real life violence horrifies me and the, the details of real crimes that occur are, are ghastly and appalling. Um, so why is it that Lots of people, including me, are interested in this as a genre. I think it's because it's, it's about the extremes of human experience. So, um, 
And we also know that it could, it could happen to any of us, these sort of... Um, the murders that occur um, and maybe on, on a dark day you look at some of the criminals and think, you know, perhaps anybody could be a murderer in the wrong circumstances. I so mean, it's a bit like a question, why do we like horror films? Why do we like being scared at times? I don't know. I think, um, I, I mean, I have different theories on this. One, one is that uh, I, I taught South Africa and, and, and I was uh, a couple of times and I was in Joburg and 70 policemen had been murdered in the six months before I got there. So 70 police officers, forget about members of the public. And I looked at this audience that came to see me and I said, why do you bother reading crime fiction? I mean, just pick up the newspaper. <laughs> you know, and, but they said, said to me that you know, the, the thing with crime fiction is normally there's an ending, there's, a, there's some form of redemption, there's some sense of justice. And, and even in a country, actually it's a really classic example, in a country as, as, as rich and as relatively crime-free as ours, you know, you know from your own works in Queensland, the number of people that got away with terrible, terrible uh, crimes. And in New South Wales, we've had our own level of corruption. And we all know that too often, powerful people don't get brought to justice. But in most of the crime fiction we read anyway, they do. And there's a comfort in that. There's a comfort in being made to feel scared, to being made to feel you know, tense, to have it ramped up. But in the end, you know that you're going to some form of justice at the end. And who is devouring these books? I just want to read a quote to you. Them. <laughs> um, from uh, Megan Abbott, the writer. And she said, I grew up reading crime fiction mysteries, true crime, a lot of true crime, and it is traditionally a male-dominated field from the outside, but from the inside what we know, those of us who read it, is that women buy the most crime fiction. They are by far the biggest readers of true crime, and there's a voracious appetite among women for these stories. And I know, I feel it. Since I was quite small, I wanted to go to those dark places. I tell you what, Val McDermott tells a wonderful story about a woman that goes into the library every day, uh, every week, and she said, and she wants crime fiction. The darker, the better. And the librarian just keeps feeding this. And next time she goes, no, no, not dark enough. And the librarian will then go and get, you know. It's something even darker. I mean, serial killer books, Mo Hader books, you name it, just dark, dark, dark. You know, until finally the woman comes in, she thumps the books down the counter and says, that's it, no more. And librarian just smiles and said, it was too much, wasn't it? And she said, nope, my husband just died. From now on, it's only romance. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that explains why all these women are here. <laughs> What did he die of? Was he was <laughs> so mysterious? But who are your readers, do you think, Michael? I mean, you've... I actually, I know that for a fact. I actually, um, for the first time before this book came out, my publishers in Australia did some, did some focus groups for market research, and, and I think they said... I actually thought that it would be dominated by women, but it's about 50-50 for men and women. Um, uh, yeah, and I think I think you know men, as you know, I think men are the pr probably greater readers of non-fiction and biographies and true crime. Perhaps I don't know. Maybe women are greater readers of true crime, um, but I think it's about with me. I know it's about fifty-fifty now. But I mean, you, you can't tell when you come to festivals or you do events because you know. Um, and again, because you, you you can get an idea that your readers are a certain type of person, but then you suddenly realise there are loads of other readers out there that have got families and young kids and they can't come to a writers festival because they've got kids to look after or, or whatever so um it's it's easy to get an impression when you come to festivals that your reader is a certain type of person but it's not always true 
When I do events for my books in Queensland, I always get a large number of very elderly ladies in little nylon floral shifts. And without exception, one or two or three will come up to me at the end of the event with tears in their eyes and ask the same question. Was Joe Bjorki Peterson corrupt? (laughs) (laughs) Tears in their eyes. Do you let them down easy or? (laughs) (laughs) What do you say to them? Well, you know, he did a lot for the state. (laughs) (laughs) We'll probably just say to them, look, the answers, you've got to read all four books. (laughs) (laughs) So we may have some budding crime writers in the audience. Um, Let's talk about plot. Do you plan it, or is it, like Byron Bay itself, largely organic? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say mine was largely organic, but because I had... It was, you know, a self-conscious tribute to Raymond Chandler and those sort of 50s crime novels. There's a certain template that's in place that gives you your beats, or, you know, you get the the sense after about maybe two-thirds of the way through that it's time for a corpse to turn up. In the house, say, or it's, you know... Uh, when things start to slow, someone comes through the door with a gun. Exactly, yeah, and knocks, knocks uh, Philip Marlowe out and he sees stars and, you know... Um, I was telling the story this morning of the, the um, episode in The Big Sleep where the, a car turns up at the end of a pier underwater and it's got a drowned man in it. And when they were making the film of that, William Faulkner was writing the screenplay and he couldn't work out for the life of him who had murdered the guy who turned up in the car. I know. It's, so, it's a massive plot hole, isn't it? it yeah. <laughs> he, he, he contacted Raymond Chandler and said, Raymond, who murdered this guy? Raymond Chandler said, uh, if I knew then, I don't remember now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's just that you feel the urge to uh, obviously deliver a dead body on cue now and again, and that's what he... I don't think he was all that scrupulous in his plots. I don't think he get away with that now. No. I, I think I also <laughs> now because, you know, when I first started writing... You know, you would get, you know, this is sort of, you know, really just sort of prior to the internet being a big thing and people emailing and, and writers having, certainly didn't have websites. And you would get a handful of letters sent to you from readers and they had come by your publisher and the publisher had normally taken out the hate mail. Oh, would they? <laughs> you know, occasionally one would slip through, but you wouldn't, you'd actually think that you were getting nothing but positive responses. <laughs> Uh, and um, and now, though, because, you know, instantly on Facebook or on Twitter, people can contact you, which is lovely because you go, if, you know, when I go to my writing desk in the morning and there are a dozen little messages and thankfully, you know, they're normally always positive saying how much they love the book or whatnot, you, you, you get a little lightness in your step when you go off to work, you know. Um, so in the, the same reason, yeah, but yeah, in the but in the same reason, these are the same people that can, um, they will let you know if you make a mistake. You know, and I've had people... I remember when that first novel was, you know, in my first, very first novel, my main character, a psychologist, Joel Lachlan, I mentioned that his great-great-great-great-grandfather was a founding member of the General Medical Council. Someone had counted back through five generations <laughs> and emailed me to say they would have only been 14. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when... You just, and Well, you're not even going to go with ballistics advice. You know, when someone tells you what sort of moron thinks a 22 bullet can pass through a body and do that damage and, you know, and you get all that sort of thing coming. But um, I can't remember the question now. (laughs) (laughs) 
What about physical encounters with your readers? Didn't you have an interesting reader from Texas? Oh my God! No, I ha- I have I made the mistake in my my very first novel, The Suspect, of putting anti George W. Bush line on page twenty nine. And, it, and it's just the character said that something didn't quite look right. It was like seeing Bill Gates in board shorts or George W. Bush in the White House. <laughs> and, uh, and on the strength, I still to this day get hate mail from middle America. On, and, uh, but this one particular email arrived uh, and, you know, how dare you insult, you know, um, our commander-in-chief. Um, he, 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 his name, you know, was Bubba. Okay, and I, and, I, and I responded that it was one line in, in, in one book, you know, told by one character. And then he came back and said, listen, you limey poofter, don't hide behind... He thought I was English. Uh, don't hide behind freedom of speech, you know. And, and it just, just launched into this absolute tirade. And I, because, you know, I'm really wise, um, decided to reply calling him a redneck sheep-shagging, gun-toting... <laughs> Inbred, who's, um, whose richest relative had a house on wheels <laughs> and whose idea of a good night out was to buy a six-pack of beer and watch the bug zapper. Don't hold back, Michael. <laughs> and Bubba replied saying, you're a dead man. I have a bullet <laughs> with your name etched on the side of it. And to cut a long story short, about four years later, or three years later, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, at a big crime convention. Where do you think Bubba came from? <laughs> I purposely stayed outside of uh, the hotel, the convention centre, out in the fringes of town. I spent three days looking after my personal safety, but on the last morning, when I thought I got away with it, I came out of my hotel room, about the fifth floor, the door shut automatically behind me, and there was a man standing in the corridor who looked like he'd learned to walk erect that morning. (laughs) And uh, he pinned me to the wall by the throat and... Oh, he answered, do you know who I am? By then I had a pretty good idea. (laughs) Uh, And it's funny, I just kept thinking, I've got to keep him talking, I've got to keep him talking, someone will come along, he won't kill me if there's a witness. And, uh, And I finally... I, 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 I said, listen, obviously I need to be educated about George W. Bush and what a great, great president he is, so uh, I'll buy you a drink. Uh, I bought him six drinks at the hotel bar and for two hours I listened and I only got rid of him because I promised that I would put an anti-Hillary Clinton line in my uh-huh. next book. And Hillary, Hillary was at that point a shoe-in to be the Democratic nominee. So I promised him I'd put an anti-Hillary Clinton line in. Now, for everyone who's read my novels, uh, through you know all of them you know you'll know there's never been an anti Hillary Clinton line, which may which you may think is sort of rather unwise on my part, but I know that just outside of Madison, Wisconsin, there's a man that's bought every one of my books, <laughs> and he, he has read them line for line, and no self-respecting author ever turns down a sale. <laughs> You're such a girly man of crime. <laughs> How you got out of that. You should have thumped Bubba. <laughs> he was bloody, you know, I, have, I mean, I could have blinded him with a shiny object. <laughs> <laughs> now, David, you emailed me another interesting discussion point, and that is looking at um, technology and whether criminals could get away with what they did 30 years ago today, for example, with the advent of, of enormous amounts of technology. 
Yeah, well, one of the when when we talk about where you get your ideas, one of the other places I get my ideas from is other books. And I had Crime and Punishment in the back of my mind. I hadn't read it for a while, but there's a dynamic in that between a um, a dogged cop and a guilty criminal, and the cop wears him down over the course of the novel, over a sort of leisurely series of interviews. It's purely psychological. This is set in the you know, 1860s or so, so there's no scientific um, ways of, of proving him guilty. And so I sort of set about using that as just a semi-conscious template. And then when I was about three quarters of the way through, I started belatedly thinking about the how realistic this sort of thing was. And the more I thought about uh, the techniques that police have at their disposal these days, the metadata and the mobile phones and the pinging of the towers and the photographs from the toll gates. It's extremely hard to do what I wanted to do, which was um, preserve for as long as possible this air of ambiguity about who was guilty and who was innocent. The more I thought about cases that I was hearing about, the, the window of um, ambiguity is just rapidly closing and people are... Uh, police rule people out or in very, very quickly these days. So it's, it's, it's bringing the bar sort of higher and higher for the crime writer as to what, as to how you can sort of keep people plausibly at large. No, it, it is that, um, we think one of the great, one of the great means of creating suspense is to obviously you make the stakes very high, but then you isolate your hero. You isolate them in a dangerous situation. And, and with the advent of mo- mobile phones, you know, and, um, and, you know, it's really hard to isolate someone now. There's only so often you can have a phone run out of charge just at the right time, you know, for <laughs> the reader's sort of going, yeah, really, we're going to go down that route? You know, and we all know what it's like watching some show and someone decides to start running or driving qu- quickly across town to rescue someone and you're sitting there thinking, why don't they just phone and tell them to get out of the house, you know? And um, so, you know, technology has created sort of... Uh, greater challenges, you know. Um, I mean, it's even from the forensic techno... I mean, guys, you guys can watch all these crime shows and you know all about fingerprints and fibres and all these sorts of things. And so you can't fool people, you know, go back and, and, you know, as easily. I mean, you can't can't isolate someone, you know, where people understand the technology available. So it does make it harder. Nobody told Roger Rogerson that, did they? No. (laughs) I mean, that incredible murder of that poor young man, it was almost entirely captured on film. Yeah. Yeah. Astonishing. And you you wonder, there's a a decorated, uh, well, I call him decorated in all sorts of means, uh, uh, ways, but uh, detective who doesn't realise that there are CCTV cameras filming his every move when they're killing someone and disposing of the body. I mean, it's astonishing. I want to talk to you about, briefly, uh, before question time, about um, characters, your characters and where they come from. But I just wanted to read a little bit from um, David's book about an ast- one of as many astonishing characters in his book. And this is sort of an ex-con who becomes a celebrity author. And his name is Liam Vag. And Ray Saint, the book, book reviewer, um, confronts him on this day. I knew that he'd robbed banks once in his mad dog youth. Everybody knew that about him. Being an ex-con was his gimmick. In prison, he got literate and wrote a crime memoir. It got published. It was a monster hit. They turned it into a movie. Maybe there was a sequel, and maybe they had a movie out of that too. 
Somewhere around then, he'd reinvented himself as a pop historian. Who had given him permission to do this, I didn't know. Judging from the one book of his I'd read, and I was fucked if I was ever going to read another one, Vag was an historian in the way I'm an opera singer when I whistle Puccini on the can. <laughs> Reading him was like hearing a proper book get recounted from memory by a drunk. <laughs> These days, Vag played the ex-con stuff down except when the publicity people got him to play it up. He was a reformed character now. He could afford to be. He dressed in designer clothes. He wore his long proletarian hair in a silver ponytail. But he still looked lean and pale and ugly, like a retired greyhound. <laughs> Sorry, that cracked me up. Um, he still had blurred tattoos hailing from the era when skin art was strictly for scum. On the jackets of his books, he posed with a leashed pit bull as if to let you know he could kill you twice if you gave him a bad review. <laughs> Yet somehow the ageing villain had atta attained respectability except in the eyes of people who still read proper books. Since nobody did, he was in the clear. <laughs> he was foully rich. He lived on the harbour. He went on TV and gave his views about the national character and world politics and law reform. He was a hooligan seer, a hack tycoon. Had it all except for merit. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. You must read this yeah. book. I want to ask, uh, have people, because I mean, you know, I love a great satire. I mean, are there people in the publishing industry or journalism, whatever, who see themselves in this book? Sometimes they're, they're people have sort of named names of... Um, who. who uh, and it, they, are any of them based on these people? You're not going to no, I, 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 I don't uh, confirm any of that. No, none <laughs> of them. Actually, Stephen Ramey reviewed it in the Australian. He said, "I think these characters are amalgams, which is dead right. None of them is meant to be anybody in particular, but there are certain types in the literary world that they might yeah. resemble." Because you've you've fallen foul of that, <laughs> haven't you? Uh, of um, basing characters on people you know. Yes, I have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on a few occasions, but in the most notable, um, a great friend of our, mutual friend of ours, um, I, I wrote a, a novella and I made him one of the primary characters. Now, I transform him tremendously, not, well, not that much, I guess, you know him, <laughs> uh, in the novella. And he's, a, he's about five foot five. Um, he had this special talent of being able to open his throat so he could drink huge quantities of alcohol very quickly. And, and he did. And he did. <laughs> and so I portrayed this, I made this character a little bit shorter because it was like Andy Cap in my book, you know, he was sort of a bit grotty and, you know, not a particularly flattering character. And um, I never thought that my friend might read the book. You know? <laughs> so one day I get a phone call about a month after the book came out and he said, um, it's me. And I said, yes. And he said, we need to talk. Oh, God. <laughs> So I had to meet him down at the London Hotel in Balmain in Sydney and there he was with the book on the bar and a beer and I sat next to him and he looked at me and he said, you know that little grotty, grimy little character that you portrayed in the novella? And I said, yes. <laughs> he said, that's the best character you've ever invented for any of your novels. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Um, what a wonderful way to end our yes. session. The authors will be in the signing tent, but please thank Michael and David. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, 
byronwritersfestival.com.